You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Today is from Ecclesiastes 3, beginning in verse 1. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up, a time to weep, and a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that the people fear before him. That which is, already has been. That which is to be, already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity." All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So songwriters often have a way of saying it best. That's why lyrics can come back to us even after not hearing a song for decades. The lyrics just come right back to us because they impacted us so deeply at a certain sort of meaningful moment in our lives when words gave language to our experience. I don't know if you remember that point in your life. Maybe when you were young, we were just like, they get me. The song gets me, finally, someone who understands. Songwriters, especially good ones, are able to take very difficult ideas and very difficult topics and weave them together artistically, saying what is otherwise nearly impossible to communicate through words. 
And what you'll find is some of the best lyrics are often filled with paradox. You only need the light when it's burning low. You only miss the sun when it starts to snow. You only know you love her when you let her go. Love, loss, light, dark, full, empty, the full range of human experiences. This portion of Ecclesiastes 3, especially the beginning portion, those first uh, eight verses, is believed to be constructed as a poem. It was originally a poem or a song. These are ancient song lyrics that took very difficult topics and strung them together in a way that has lasted thousands of years. Here we are talking about this song thousands of years later. In fact, these are lyrics that regardless of your faith, most people today still are familiar with at least a portion of this song. And the reason for this is simple. They resonate with us. These these words get us. Generations come and go, cultures rise and fall, musical genres fade into history. But the range of human experiences that are mentioned in this song, absolutely timeless. And at the center of this song and the verses that are to follow is the theme of time. Look at me again in verse 1. For everything there is a season and a what? A time for every matter under heaven. What I want to do is I want to look at this portion of Scripture under three headings. This will be the direction for this morning's message. We're going to look first at the dance of time, secondly at discerning eternity, and finally at divine orchestration. But let's look first at the dance of time. And look with me again in verses 2 through 8, and I want you to notice the sort of back and forth, up and down rhythm that is expressed here. I'm going to read this again. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away. A time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silence, a time to speak. A time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, a time for peace. Up, down, back and forth. Like any good song, the seasons of life are dynamic. What that means is that there's ebbs and there's flows, there's ups and there's downs. It's very rhythmic. Life is rhythmic. Life is like a dance, if you will. Now, I've never been to New Orleans, although I say it like I've been to New Orleans, you know. And, but something that's always intrigued me is this thing called the Second Line Parade. This has nothing to do with Mardi Gras, by the way. The Second Line Parade is a musical march that moves through the streets for special occasions like marriage or a funeral. It's often led by a conductor with the big hat and, you know, the baton or whatever. And then there's a band, a sort of ragtag band behind them. And then what is known as the Second Line, it's all the people that sort of fall in behind and join the dance. Now, I was reading an article about these second line parades, and it was described like this. A second line parade is a thumping, syncopated feet moving glory. Imagine that you're in your mind. A thumping, syncopated feet moving, syncopated feet moving glory. Picture now the march of time. 
the unstoppable movement of history as a dance or a parade with a tune and a tempo. It can't be manipulated. Time cannot be controlled. I hate to break it to you, but you are not the conductor. You don't choose the song. You don't choose the tempo. You don't choose the direction. This is way too big for you to control, but it is still welcoming you to join the rhythm, to respond by syncing your responses, your behaviors, and your attitudes with the song to align your life with this moving rhythm. Now, what you can do, or try to do at least, is you can try to spend your time resisting it like a lot of people do unsuccessfully trying to impose your timing and your tempo. Whoa, 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 whoa. I don't like the song. No, 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 I don't like where we're going. No, no, I like the tempo. Let, let's play this song. Let's play this song. But it's not going to stop for you. And probably it's going to knock you over. Or you can embrace it. It's the option laid out before us here. And Ecclesiastes shows us that life is simply better. And he uses that word, better. Life is better when we stop trying to impose our own song and we live with joy and goodness within the seasons that come our way. Life is better that way. The focus here is not about how to respond to each situation appropriately. Although, responding appropriately is very important. In fact, what I wanna do is I wanna challenge you this week to go back and read this passage. I hope that this is something that we do regularly, but specifically this week, go back and read this passage, verses uh, two through eight, and begin to consider your own life and your own responses. And I think for a lot of us, myself included, this is a huge challenge in my own life, I think for a lot of our life, our challenges and our relational conflict happens because we don't grasp what the moment requires. We don't grasp how to respond appropriately, and we end up responding inappropriately to the specific times that we face. So I want to challenge you pastorally, go back and consider those things for your life. But here's the point. That's not the main point here. The main point is about how you respond to the full range of experiences. That's what their preacher's getting at. How you respond to so many different seasons that you cannot control. How, all these seasons that you cannot orchestrate in your life. The unpredictable nature of this dance of time. Something to notice about this song here in Ecclesiastes 3 is that the pattern is shifty. I don't know if you noticed this or not, but verse 2 goes positive experience, negative experience. Positive experience, negative experience. And then it shifts. Verse 3, negative experience, positive experience. Negative experience, positive experience. And it shifts several times throughout with any, without any kind of warning. It just goes back, 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 boom, boom. So bear with me now. What this shows us is that time isn't just like music or a dance. Time is like jazz. Now, jazz is a very polarizing genre, right? You either love jazz or you hate jazz. There are not a lot of people that are like, okay, with jazz. Often I hear that people who don't like jazz don't like it because they think it sounds chaotic. It's all over the place. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't have like a logical flow. And that's because 
It's unlike pop music. It's unlike your typical ballad. It's unlike anything you're going to hear when you turn on the radio to pop music. It's unpredictable. That's not to say that jazz is chaotic. In fact, jazz has involved some of the world's best musicians that the world has ever known. Coltrane is, is said to or believed to have uh, practiced scales for 12 hours a day. This is not chaotic music, but it is very unpredictable. And that's why it's so beautiful. And listen, here's the point. That's why jazz is so unsettling at the same time. For those of us in the West, we feel unsettled. We feel very uncomfortable. We feel very anxious and on edge when we can't figure out what's coming next. That's why people don't like jazz. Is it up? Is it down? Is it slowing? Is there a key change? I want to know what's coming next, and I can't. I can't figure this out. Like time, the beauty only appears when you stop trying to control the song, when you stop demanding to know what's next, and you settle in. The point here is that we are to embrace the rhythm that God has ordered. The times and the seasons that are out of our hands, but are in God's hands. And he's saying it, so stop stressing about it. Stop trying to control it. Stop trying to control the times and the seasons and focus on living well and with joy in the meantime. Embrace the season that you're in and learn how to respond appropriately within your lot in life. The second thing we see here, man, it is warm in here, isn't it? The fans are working hard this morning. The second thing we see here is discerning eternity. Discerning eternity. Now, there's a story uh, that comes from one of Steve Jobs' biographies, Steve Jobs being one of the creators of the Apple empire. And it said that one afternoon before his death, he wasn't feeling well, and he was in his backyard, and he begins to talk about his sort of, he begins to reflect on his death coming. And he talks about these experiences that he had in India decades before he had studied Eastern religion like Buddhism, these ideas about transcendence and reincarnation and these sort of things. And he said these words. He said, I'm about 50-50 on believing God. For most of my life, I felt that there must be more to our existence than what meets the eye, or as the writer of Ecclesiastes would say, there's got to be something beyond what we see under the sun. He goes on to say, I'd like to think that something survives after you die. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and maybe a little bit of wisdom, and then it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness endures. It says he fell silent for a long time. And then he said, but on the other hand, perhaps it's like an on and off switch. Click, and you're gone. He was silent for a little bit longer, and then he broke with a little smile, and he said, maybe that's why I never liked putting on and off switches on Apple devices. The preacher of Ecclesiastes is exploring an extremely relevant perspective that was held by Steve Jobs and many, many people, maybe some people in here today, but definitely people that we know in our lives, loved ones, family members, people that we work with, our friends. And it's this idea of like, who knows? 
it's not flat out atheism. It's just like, who knows? In fact, look with me again in verse 21. It's the, the, the perspective that the preacher expresses here. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upwards? Who knows what happens after death? Who knows if this time that we call the present moment is all that we have? Is our fate really like the animals? We simply return into the ground to become like biological compost from dust to dust? Is that it? Or is there more to life than just eat, drink, be merry, and then click, you're dead? Who knows? What's clear from the story of Steve Jobs was that he was haunted by this idea of facing his own finite nature, reflecting on his own looming death without having something, or more specifically, without having someone infinite to cling to, to rely upon. And the uncertainty was plaguing him. It's actually interesting that his own uncertainty affected much of the technology that we have in our pockets right now. It bled into all of his life. And the preacher explains where that feeling of like, there's got to be more to this. The preacher explains where that sense comes from. Because according to Ecclesiastes 3, God has written eternity into our hearts. We were created for eternity. We were created for life beyond the sun. In fact, look at me again in verse 11. He, speaking of God, has put eternity in man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. What that means is that we can sense that it's there, there's a vague sense that there's got to be something beyond, but it's mysterious, isn't it? It can't be harnessed, it can't be controlled, and we can't just simply discover it and figure it out on our own. In fact, even in unbelief, even for those who have determined to reject God, there still remains this deep, gnawing sense that life under the sun can't be all there is. It's what C.S. Lewis called the inconsolable longing in the heart for we know not what. He called it the unnameable something. He said we cannot tell it because it's a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience, but we cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. He described it like a faint song where the echoes die out just before they catch our ear. Did you hear that? Hear what? Something that sounds familiar. You ever been in a restaurant and you can hear some sort of tune in the background, but you can't put your finger on what that song is? You hear the rhythm, you hear the, the melody, but you just can't discern what the specific song is? It sounds familiar, but you can't put your finger on it? That's the way that Lewis is describing eternity for all of us. It's there, but I just... What the Bible shows us and helps us to discern is that we were created for eternity. We were created to live. Death was not the plan. Life and communion was the plan. Flourishing was the plan. Eternity was the plan. But the Bible also tells us that through sin, death entered into the story. 
And because of sin, death touches all of us. And the sad irony is that in all of the ways that we have tried to control our lives, in all the ways that we have tried to prolong our time, we've actually, in the long run, just shortened our days. We stifled the song. We forfeited our eternity with God through our autonomy. And yet the good news is that despite the fact that we can't access eternity on our own, and that not one of us will ever be able to rise above our finite nature on our own, the good news of the gospel is that the creator of time itself entered in to the messy dance we call time. The gospel writer John tells us this in his prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, speaking of Jesus. And then John goes on to say, and the word, Christ, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So what John is saying is that the infinite one became finite. Read throughout the Gospels. Jesus lived a very real life in very real time, in very real space, with very real seasons. For him, there was a time to be born, and the good news is, for him, there was a time to die. There was a time to seek, a time to lose, a time to speak, and as he was led to the slaughter, a time to be silent. Jesus entered into all of the cramped nature of time and life and experienced it in all of its fullness. And at the cross, we're told that the full weight of eternity came to bear on his shoulders, the crushing weight of death and hell and forever separation from God fell on him. But on the third day, God, by his Holy Spirit, raised him to life again, conquering death and thereby reopening eternity for all who would believe. Eternity is absolutely out of reach for any of us, and yet eternity has come to us in God's Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? We were created to experience eternity. Life beyond dust to dust. But apart from God, and apart from the life that we receive in trusting in his son Jesus, eternity, eternity will always be elusive. It's always going to be out of reach. It's always going to be like that indistinguishable something taunting us from afar, nagging at us like a faint echo that never quite reaches our ears. But what used to be a faint echo is made loud and clear through the gospel of Jesus Christ. We sang it in our first uh, set of songs. In Christ alone my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. Maybe that's what the psalmist meant when he calls the church to sing a new song. The better song. The full song of Jesus Christ. Lady Julian of Norwich, who lived some 600 years ago, she described the Christian life as a journey into the infinite. Sort of like joining a, a second line parade of life. 
that when we are hidden in Christ through faith, that we are now moving in the direction of unlimited, boundless discovery of endless joy, endless possibility, endless life through faith in Jesus Christ. Now let's look finally and briefly at divine orchestration. What I want you to do is to consider some of our practices, some of the things that we take for granted in life. And what I want you to do is to consider with me just how much our technology, the technology that we use on a daily basis, is designed to control the seasons and our times. Devices to prolong death. Methods for planning birth. Apps to connect us with people for the sake of embrace. That's another way of just describing hookup apps, by the way. Tech like do not disturb when we do not want to embrace someone. Logistics that provide food when they are not in season where we are. Streaming shows at the drop of a hat that give us a good laugh when we need it. Find my phone so I can know where a loved one is without actually having to go out and search for them. And on and on and on. It's just short-circuiting that process. And in a way, not all technology is bad, but in a way, technology is just a way for us to harness control. To make time our servant. But listen to what the preacher says in verse 14. I perceived... That whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Now, this creates a challenge for us. This wars against our autonomy. This wars against maybe everything that we were brought up to believe. Like the one rabbi named Harold Kushner who experienced a very difficult time in his life. And he found himself asking this question, where was God when I needed him most? For him, he was a young father and he tragically and suddenly lost his firstborn son. And as a young father trying to grapple with just the sudden loss of his son, the sudden death of his son... He began to wrestle, wrestle with his faith. Now, he was a Jewish scholar. In fact, he was a professor in a seminary. But he began to question his concept of God and his beliefs. And specifically, he began to rethink his view of an omnipotent God, an all-powerful God. And he says, in his own words, that he felt forced to face the fact that God was either all-powerful but not at all kind, or he was good and kind and loving but not all that powerful, not in control. But he couldn't be both. Not after facing what he had faced. And where he landed was that God must be weaker than he thought. He said explicitly, I would rather compromise God's power in order to affirm his goodness. And as I was reading this, I had sympathy and compassion, absolutely, and I can actually associate with that struggle. But what stood out to me was this, that in his moment of grief, in his season of death, he thought he was being forced to choose between these options. God is either this or he is that, but he can't be both. But Ecclesiastes 3 shows us that this is an, un, an absolutely unnecessary decision for us. Look with me again in verse 11. He, speaking of God, has made everything beautiful 
in its time. Think about that passage. He has made everything. What does that mean? God is sovereign, God is powerful, and God is in control. And yet beautiful in its time. God is good. God is creative. God is bringing about beauty, even when it doesn't look like it. What we have to acknowledge, what I believe the preacher is forcing us to acknowledge today, is that our perspective is simply limited. And it's always going to be limited this side of eternity. Our scope is all that we can see from under the sun. And often the seasons and the times that we experience, they don't make sense to us. By design, we're finite. But remember, the preacher is leading us to, to, to the place where we begin to ask questions like, wait a minute, who or what is beyond the sun? Who rules over the sun? To discover what the psalmist sang in Psalm 31, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. And listen to these words. My times are in your hand. That's the confession of the believer. I don't control my times. My times are in your hands, God. The one who holds the stars and the sun and the planets in motion, the hands that were pierced for our salvation, he holds our time. He holds our lives. He holds our future. These are good and capable hands. Now, I need to mention this briefly. This is not what some have called determinism, which means that Everything is already planned and set, so human actions don't matter at all. What's it matter? God's control. It doesn't really matter how we respond or live or do or whatever. God's just like pulling the strings and whatever. The preacher isn't saying that there's nothing that we can do about what happens. He is simply pointing out the good news that there's a God who is sovereign over all of our seasons. Time is not random. Our seasons are not just haphazard or chaotic or like whatever. God rules over our moments and all of our days. There is order. There is beauty. There is workmanship. There is creativity. But we are not simply bystanders just mindlessly along for the ride. There's a part in the long uh, series called The Lord of the Rings where Frodo is at this point in his life where he's really questioning his involvement in this whole mission that he's involved in. And he says, I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. And Gandalf responds, so do I. And so do all who live to see such times. But that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. We live in times where it's easy to say, I wish we just lived at a different time in history. I wish I didn't live right now. And that's fair. But that's not up for us to decide. Our decision today, church, is how to live with the time that we've been given. And the good news, the hopeful news, is that God is welcoming us to steward this little piece of eternity that he has given to us in this present moment, to seek to do good with that limited time, to live well in that small lot. The Apostle Paul would write in the book of, 
Ephesians in the New Testament, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. It can actually literally be translated, redeem the time. Redeem the time. What this means for us as Christians is that if our lives have truly been redeemed through Jesus Christ, then that means our time has as well. It's not just my soul. It's not just my body. It's also my time. Which then means that every minute since I have trusted in Jesus is a blood-bought minute, a blood-purchased minute. Which then means there can never be anything trivial about our time again. Nothing. And while we can't control it, and we surely can't bend time to our will, we can redeem it. By the power of God's Spirit, we can respond in faith and faithfulness. We can, by God's grace, make the best use of the time for God's glory and our joy. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you.